Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Seasons of the Witch on this October Eve. You are going to be listening to Raven and Stephanie Gramasi talk about the dead, reincarnation, and the ancestors this evening. As we move more towards the October Eve that will consummate this season of the witch, this particular season of the witch. So, um... Raven, my dear. Hmm. What do you have to say for yourself? Oh, I've decided not to talk tonight. I'm just going <laughs> to be quiet and commune with the dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tonight um, we we want to focus on the mystical, get you in the mood for the uh, Samhain or gathering, as we call it in the Ashworth and Willow tradition. Um, the uh, culmination of the October season on the eve of November. Um, in some traditions, November itself extends the uh, festivals of the dead. In, in Italy, that happens where there's three days. It's in Catholicism, they call it All Souls Day. And it'll run for three days, November 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, where people actually go down to the graveyards and they have picnics um, next to their uh, beloved dead. And they uh, basically feast with the dead. Now, this shows up in a lot of cultures, uh, you know, done in different ways. The customs are different, but the theme seems to be the same. And it all falls right around that time of November Eve and into the first few days of November. Now, that has to do with an old uh, mythos or practice or belief in ancient times that at this time of year, the veil between the worlds, the world of the living and the world of the dead, begin to thin, and it becomes so thin that the dead can return to the living, and the living can reach out to meet the dead uh, as this veil parts or thins, as they say. Now, when you look at that tradition, it, it may be because in the lands in which that um, originated, those themes originated, October bordering on November, uh, most of the vegetation was dying away. And I'm, I'm sure to our ancestors, that seemed, you know, everywhere. And uh, they may have felt 
that the dead themselves were attracted back or somehow attached to that idea of the dying land and uh, that the dead were attracted in. Now, we're going to talk about some of the customs that uh, attached itself to the idea of the dead revisiting the living. Um, and that whole theme changes. Um, at periods, certain periods of history, the dead were feared and then later venerated and then sometimes back to fear. And then sometimes it just became a matter of appeasing the dead so that um, they weren't inclined to harm you. And the harm was, was thought to be um, based upon the envy that the dead had for the living, remembering what it was like to be alive. And, and I guess in comparison to their lot in death, um, there was a, a belief in envy. I don't know how true you know that is. Uh, in, in my own practice, I would not say that that was the case. But I think that these things um, lie behind some of these customs and traditions. So part of the show... We do want to talk about the lore, the superstitions, you know, the folklore, the magic, and some of the rooted beliefs that I think are pagan, pre-Christian, spiritual uh, views. And uh, but we'll also talk about uh, reincarnation, which I think can easily be tied into the idea of the dead returning to the living at the season of Samhain. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the gugas that show up today in the celebration of Halloween, which is attached to the idea. And uh, then we'll also touch on um, altars, both uh, a Samhain um, sort of theme for an altar, but also uh, an ancestral altar that actually opens the way for direct communication um, with the dead on um, using your um, altar setup. And uh, on the night of uh, the eve of November, uh, Samhain, or as I said before, Gadrian in the Ashburton Willow tradition of witchcraft. Now, Gadrian is an old English name that means to gather. And since in some parts of Europe, gathering in the last harvest took place in October, and then also they believe that the dead gathered uh, in the world of the living. So we chose the word Gadrian to sort of encapsulate the theme um, without using any cultural markers or expressions as you would with Samhain, which is Celtic. Um, Gadrian allows us a little bit more um, expansion and doesn't ex- exclude anyone um, you know, based upon cultural preference. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some interesting things attached to the idea of the season. Now one of the mystical elements that we want to talk about are the three great mysteries. And the three great mysteries are now, as they have always been, Birth, life, and death. Where did we come from? Birth. Why are we here? Life. What happens after this? Death. And there were colors that were associated with those. Birth was, uh, where did we come from, was a black color. The procreative state, you know, the night and um, that type of thing. Um, Why are we here? The purpose. That was red, the red blood that flows within us. So that was the theme of life. And then death, white, that was the bone, the bone memory. So you have black, red, and white are the mystery colors. And in uh, the tradition of Ashburton Willow, we symbolize these with colored cords um, that are used in a variety of ways within our tradition. So black, red, and white are the mystery colors. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And what happens after this? 
in ancient times, they used to believe that memory resided within the skull. Um, so if you had the skull of someone who died in your tribe, um, you uh, could retain their memories. And also those memories included their skills. So sometimes people would keep the skull of a warrior um, if they wanted to have the extra knowledge and skill of a warrior. They might keep the skull of a bard if they wanted that mysticism and poetic uh, balance. Um, perhaps a blacksmith for that for that particular type of work or any anything that they wanted to retain in the bone memory they kept that. So the skull shows up a lot in the Samhain, Gadrian, um, November Eve uh, symbolism we see it today. In Halloween you have the skull, you have the cauldron, you know, you've got other things that are tied in. And these are really quite ancient. So we are seeing remnants um, appearing in modern times. So even Halloween or Samhain or Gadrian is ever ancient, ever new, because it contains old symbols and rooted ideas. Mm -hmm. And yet we have new expressions of those new ways we do it today. But that negates nothing from the past. No, would we want it to? I mean, as a traditionalist, I feel that that's the importance of that because that is the onion being peeled back. Exactly. Now, there's another mystical element that we'll touch on before we go into other things of folklore and, and the trick-or-treat theme. Um, and that has to do with the star system of the Pleiades. Now, the Pleiades shows up in lots and lots of lore. It actually even shows up in, in uh, modern UFO um, lore and uh, shows up a lot in, in American Indian lore as well. Some American Indians believe that the, the uh, star gods who taught them came from the Pleiades. And there's lots of stories about beings coming from the Pleiades. So it is sort of noteworthy. Now, years back when I was uh, working on one of my books, I researched the Pleiades, and what I found was a reference to them being the gates of life and death. And that intrigued me, so I started looking closer at that theme. And one of the things that I found is that the Pleiades are, are marked by October and May in particular. In October, the Pleiades appear closest on the horizon. And in May, which is opposite October on the wheel of the year, mm -hmm. the Pleiades are furthest from the horizon. So this is interesting. Uh, in October, the gates of life and death are closest to the horizon. So you can sort of see that connection um, to the Pleiades and this particular season in which the veil thins, that these gateways are right on the horizon or closest to the horizon, meaning that the dead could come and go, cross over easily because it's on the border. Now, in May, they're furthest from the horizon, so the Pleiades would be higher away, um, so the gates of life and death are actually extended up further. And so when I look at that lore, I associate the Pleiades, um, when they're furthest from the horizon, with the theme of reincarnation, you know, something taking place on the soul level, higher in the celestial realm, which eventually um, manifests uh, the uh, process or the wheel for the return, the wheel of life and uh, rebirth. So those are interesting things. Um, and, you know, I often wondered, uh, too, you know, sometimes you see at uh, Halloween, you'll see costumes where witches' hats or wizard hats have stars on them, or someone's holding a wand with a star on it, you know, and 
And when I look at that as a as a mystic, I think is is this a memory? You know, is this a memory of that star system? Uh, well, how yeah, the stars are associated with the you know, yeah. That's and, really a, an interesting observation. Yeah, yeah. So you know, lots of things to play with and think about. I think it's a fun time of the year, um, and uh, we we can uh, explore it in different ways and sort of look at it as we will. Um, so by and large, though, the season itself, at least um, for our ancestors, um, was deeply connected, deeply connected with the other world, um, the place where everyone went to after death. But also the fairy realm was on the other side as well. And there are stories in which there are two realms on the other side. There's the land of the fairy and then the realm of the dead. And in some stories, you have to pass through the realm of the fairy first, and then enter the realm of the dead. And some people choose to stay in the fairy realm or are chosen to stay in the fairy realm. It's one bit of lore. And others uh, move on to the realm of the dead for reincarnation. Now, there, there are some suggestions in Etruscan lore that the dead can become fairies. And uh, that's a really interesting thing when I was doing uh, research on the Etruscans. And it, it connects with uh, beings that they call the Lassa, L-A-S-A. And they were spirits of the field. But these spirits of the field were also associated with burial mounds um, in, in um, uh, central North Italy, in which they were very much like those in other realms. They were a mound with only one hole for, um, on the top. And that's where the spirits could come and go. And those were later thought of as fairy mounds in the lore of these mounds. So there's this mixing of spirits of the dead and fairies and uh, possibly becoming a fairy. And that part seems more southern. I've spoken with the experts on the northern, and there, there isn't, doesn't seem to be as much connection with a, a human who dies becoming a fairy. But there's lots of connections between... Uh, with fairies kidnapping human babies or even sometimes taking a, uh, a human into the fairy realm and keeping them there. That was the story of... Uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Noel. No, I'm thinking... Oh. Well, that is true. That was cool. That was cool. Oh, I'm thinking um, Robert Kirk. Robert Kirk yeah, legend Robert and Hamlin, yeah. I think, also is a, a folklore tale in which a human is taken in into the fairy realm and there's lots of ideas about why why that is and what's going on and um, in the medieval days of telling the story the fairies were were the bad guys um just like witches were and any really uh beings that were mystical or magical in nature one thing i noticed uh in my research with the realm of the dead and the other world is the um images of the spirits of the dead wearing birch uh, vests and they have birch hats. So birch is very, very closely tied to the idea of death and spirits of the dead in these old tales. And um, later on, we'll probably talk about the witch's broom, which uh, used birch, and how witches were associated with um, working with the dead. So it doesn't surprise me to find the early ideas of birch associated with the dead and the dead wearing many birch. Um, and then seeing that witches have a, uh, a broomstick that has a birch sweep on it. And sweeping indicates moving and directing, <clears throat> pardon me, as well as other things. So 
we'll we'll tie into that uh, in a little bit. But I think all that's pretty interesting. Um, the fairy realm is interesting with the Robert Kirk idea. You want to touch a little bit on uh, what we've read about Robert Kirk well, in the fairy realm? Well, he was a, a, a Christian, wasn't he? A, a, um, he was a minister. A minister, mm-hmm. right. And it is said that um, he went to a, well, I don't really remember exactly the story, that he went to the mound and yeah, he, was invited in mm-hmm. eventually, and he became um, endeared to one of the fairy there. Um, but things were very different within the mound than they were on the general he, he wrote a diary, um, which his son later found, of his uh, dealings with the fairies inside the mountain. Uh, it, it was published in a book called um, The Common, Wealth of Commonwealth of Elves and Fairies, right. um, which is a, a, a worthwhile reading <clears throat> if you can get your hands on it. It does talk about uh, that whole idea. And then one day uh, he didn't return when he went out at night to the fairy realm and uh, the legend became that the fairies had kept him, took him in the, in the land of the fairy and, the fairy itself, and right. they, uh, they never released him. Um, and that's one of the, that's how the story ends. That's how the legend ends. <clears throat> the legend ends. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit uh, about Trick or Treat, the modern adaptation of some of these old films. Today we have the custom of kids dressing up, you know, different costumes of all different kinds. Ghosts are very popular, which is a very popular uh, costumes. You'll see zombies, you'll see, you know, all kinds of things, vampires, werewolves, <clears throat> all these things associated with ancient lore and legend. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea was that these spirits of the dead return to the living and that because they envied the living, um, the living wanted to make sure that they didn't attach themselves back. Um, so what they would do is they would leave food for them outside the house so they didn't come in. So they might leave, um, you know, some kind of soup. Uh, often bean soup was a very popular uh, offering uh, to the dead at this uh, season. Uh, mead or wine, strong drink was put out there. Um, and the idea was that they came and they consumed that. Now, I always thought it was interesting about the idea of using the beans because beans have a very, very ancient connection to the dead. There were actually some taboos in ancient Greece about eating beans because they, um, they were believed that spirits of the dead resided within the beans awaiting rebirth. <clears throat> and... Um, in Italy, what you find is the fava bean is a very uh, prominent bean that uh, grew in a plant that was uh, thought to touch the dead. The roots were deep into the underworld, they believed, and the blossoms of the fava bean were, pristine, were white, pristine white. And then in the center of each petal was a splash of black. Almost looked like if you took an eyedropper and dropped some India ink on it. And the ancients believed that those were the fingerprints of the dead that had touched the plant and that all of this was transferred into the bean. So these beans were used in divination. Um, we use them in some of the, some of the Strega traditions used to follow beans for divination. Um, they were also the cooked up and, and often. Right. And they're also cooked and put on street corners in great vats. 
um, and the poor would come, you know, and it was kind of a festival feed for them. Christianity picked this up later, and they kept cooking the beans in southern Italy. They kept in, uh, they would cook these beans on the street corners. The monks would. And when the, the poor would come to eat, they would have to listen to a sermon <laughs> before they could feed them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we see that today. Some of the soup kitchens do that. Yeah. One Salvation Army type, I guess, where um, you have to come and listen to a biblical you know, reading of some sort before you can eat. <clears throat> um, now, we do know also that in days of old, uh, when someone died, they would uh, put a, um, a showing of the dead person out, and they would hold a wake for them. And in the early days, the wakes, uh, and I guess they still do, actually, the wakes um, involve um, having a meal. You come and there's a, you know, a spread put out. Right. And people come and they eat and they you know, give their condolences to the family and, and that type of thing. But the idea was in the old days that the dead still needed food. Um, for the seven days that a soul stayed uh, in the proximity of its body before entering the other world, um, it still needed sustenance because it was still attached to the idea of life. It hadn't really transitioned yet fully from a physical being to realizing it was <clears throat> me, back in the soul um, or spirit state. Right. So it partake of the meal itself. And later on, um, those meals for the dead were replaced with flowers. People would send flowers to a funeral, uh, flowers uh, to bedside of the dead and that type of thing. And the belief, the mystical belief was as the flowers withered, the dead were drawing the sustenance from, uh, from the flowers and sustenance from the fruit and from the meal. So as these things withered, um, like a, an apple shriveled up or whatever it might be, flowers went limp, the, the dead had absorbed the energy food. And so this was a whole thing about being tied um, to uh, nourishing the, the dead for those seven-day periods. <clears throat> and there's lots of customs that were tied in uh, with the seven days um, that the dead uh, remained. And in some of the mystical lore, the dead can travel around and they'll meet you know, all the people they knew in life. And they listen to all the things that people are saying about them, good and bad. And that the soul learns a lot about the lifetime that it spent and the things it did or failed to do by listening to what everyone has to say about them, even attending the funeral, you get a wider, the soul gets a wider view of how its lifetime was seen um, by the many people who had contact in, in whatever way, large or small, with those individuals. So, continuing on with the idea of trick-or-treat, we find the basic things, lighted pumpkins, the cauldron, witches and the dead, and ghosts Jones, are yeah. pretty common. So let's just look at a few of those things, and then we'll, we'll go to our break and come back and get into some uh, deeper levels. But for now, let's look at the lighted pumpkin. Now, I always thought that was odd, you know, having, having um, cut my teeth much earlier on witchcraft than on Halloween, um, I always thought it was odd that the pumpkin was carved with a, you know, sort of evil face. Maniacal. Maniacal, kind of, spooky yeah. face, yeah. you know, and then yeah. a, a candle was put inside of that, and, and that these, <laughs> these pumpkins were, were there to chase off 
spirits of the dead and evil spirits. And I thought, well, why, you know, if you have an evil spirit, why would an evil spirit be chased off by a, a menacing-looking pumpkin, you know? And what was the lore behind all of that? And uh, it, it goes back into candle magic and gourd magic, um, which is very, very old. Um, that lighting a candle within a gourd and, and putting gourds around the areas that you want to protect, the light kept the, uh, the dead from, you know, and the evil yeah, spirits yeah. from wanting to enter that circle of light so hmm. you could protect it. And then I imagine as humans do, they like to embellish on things, so probably symbols were later put on these gourds and then following that. Cutting them off, carving them, yeah. And then they found, you know, things like the pumpkin, a much larger way to go, you <laughs> know, and um, and that became very handy um, and more plentiful in the fall. <laughs> so I think, and it's, again, my opinion, I think that maybe all of this was transferred later on to the pumpkin and the idea of putting the uh, light in and having the jack-o'-lantern um, uh, that was carried through graveyards, that was set in household thresholds, thresholds, that type of thing. <clears throat> but I'm sure people can look that up and find lore about it. I, I didn't do that for the show, um, but uh, you know, that's my, my take on pumpkins. Yeah, I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's relatively reasonable. There'll be something there about it. I, too, do not know anything about the history of the jack-o'-lantern. So, Google jack-o'-lantern um, during the break. <laughs> oh, no, let um, Okay, and the cauldron shows up, of course, um, in the trick-or-treat uh, theme. And, and it ties back, in my viewing of looking at the ever-ancient, ever-new, that there were cauldrons of regeneration that appear both in southern and northern European lore. And uh, often we'll see people putting um, all their candy in a cauldron and passing out the candy from the cauldron, or they'll, they'll put apples in the cauldron, and sometimes the uh, bobbing for apples kind of thing um, is, is tied to some old uh, mystical ideas of entering the fairy realm, and the tide was uh, connected to the apple theme and the water, the lady in the lake, there's lots of interesting things you can um, put into cauldron lore um, at this time as well. So we have the cauldron of regeneration, um, the plentiful cauldron that's regenerating food for the dead here at the time of uh, all Hallow, Halloween, Halloween, uh, the skull, of course, we've already touched on as part of the folklore of the season, symbolizes the ancestors and symbolizes the spirits of the dead as well. We'll talk a little bit about the ritual use of those proposed the show, so stay tuned for that because that's, um, that's going to be really interesting. And uh, we have some suggestions on how you can use the skull and crossbones uh, on your own altar uh, this season. And witches and the dead, you know, one of the earliest, the people, a lot of people don't know this, but one of the earliest accusations uh, against witches in Christian times was that they communed with the spirits and they met at the crossroads to talk to the dead. Now, this was before Christianity accused witches of gathering um, to uh, worship Satan, um, were involved with demons. That came actually much later um, in, in time than people realized. Um, but in the early uh, history period of Christianity, uh, witches were associated with the dead. Now, the, the ministers that were protesting this idea, because people were going to witches to speak to their dead, 
uh, and spouses and children and whatever. And the church was frowning on this. So the ministers would go around and they would do these sermons. And uh, one of the things that they said was that witches were conning people by pretending to speak to the dead and that they were robbing uh, grieving widows of their money by pretending that they could talk to the dead. So this was a way in which the church was trying to diminish the uh, connection people had uh, with witches and their connection with the dead, which would have been an ancient association. And we do see in ancient uh, pre-Christian literature, especially Greek literature, how people seek out uh, witches to communicate with the dead. It's a very common theme in, in many uh, uh, Greek tales. So we do have that strong connection. And then ghosts, of course, are connected to the folklore of the season. And that makes sense because here we have, again, the spirits of the dead coming in various forms. Um, some come as mourning, you know, some come as uh, mourning as in being sad. Some come in a uh, reconnective way. They want to re-embrace um, those that they knew before. So we had two versions of these ghosts, what some people might want to call good and bad. And then in modern times, a lot of people like to go to what they think is a haunted house or a haunted graveyard, the idea of, you know, a meeting, you know, a ghost or hearing or seeing a ghost, you know, people kind of like that idea and uh, they like to be scared. And so you see a lot of spooky stuff this time of year, haunted houses and, you know, all these kinds of things, which kind of celebrates the mixture of modern ideas and ancient ideas. But, you know, it's all celebration. And we do know that uh, this season was, was celebrated by our ancestors. And it's one of the favorite celebrations of many uh, pagans and many witches today. And uh, I think the spiritual focus on it is that it is time that we can communicate with the dead, the beloved dead, and with the ancestors who are the wisdom keepers. And, um, you know, so for me as a modern witch, that's my real focus at this time. I, I love the lore. You know, Stephanie and I, you know, we like to carve pumpkins and put them out. We love trick-or-treaters coming by the house. You know, we, we love all the modern adaptations. But aside from that and behind the scenes, you know, we, we seek the sacred elements of what's going on. So we, you know, we, we do the kid thing. And mm-hmm. we, we do uh, like the, you know, that. And then after 9 o'clock or thereabouts, you know, we'll close our house off from um, treaters and then turn our attention to the sacred uh, season and going to our altar and we'll talk more about altars and stuff when we come back from, from the break. All right, so let's take our break and we're going to appropriately listen to Dan the Bard and his song Calvin and uh, we'll be right back after this wonderful song. Feel the 
powers of earth, sea and sky, of dragon and fairy and shades of the night, hear the call of our ancestors of blood and bone.
to the powers of earth, sea and sky Of dragon and fairy in shades of the night We call to our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing stone Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Deep within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your carried when's children The cauldron born Oh lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell The cauldron's brew and magic she will give to you. You will dance in the eye of the storm, your carrot when children, the cauldron born. You're the cauldron Tonight we've been talking about um, the dead. We've talked about we've talked about the thinning of the veil. Uh, the interesting um, information or the interesting fact about the Pleiades uh, having been in October at its lowest point on the horizon, and then in the opposite month, the opposite time of the year in May. It is at its highest point in the sky, uh, which is fascinating. Raven talked on that earlier. Um, also talked about some of the uh, old lore, uh, pumpkins, jack-o'-lanterns, witches, cauldrons. And um, now I think Raven's going to talk a little bit more about the uh, idea of, of the moon and um, the, the dead. So there's lots of uh, interesting lore that are that is associated with the season, and when we look at the pieces of it, we can put together a theme or a story. Um, when we look at the idea of a full moon and um, November Eve, Samhain, Gadrian, you know, when there's a full moon, often when you see these uh, images today. Halloween images, you know, you'll see them all over the place. And what often shows is a, a full moon with a tree, um, you know, sort of in the front foreground. So you see the branches, you know, against the white moon behind it. And uh, this ties in with the old teachings that the dead await rebirth within the tree. This is a very, very old uh, European uh, piece of lore that uh, people are birthed. From trees. Now, to 
surprisingly, um, or not surprisingly, in the case of uh, in uh, ancient uh, pre-Christian uh, myths and legends, you have uh, humans um, made from trees by various gods. Um, Zeus made uh, uh, humans from um, two different trees. And I think in the north, um, it was an ash tree. The gods made humans from ash trees. In um, southern Europe, I know that oak tree was one. I was trying to remember the other. Because there were two ages, or even three ages of them, in which Zeus formed them from trees. But again, this idea of humans coming from trees, um, souls awaiting rebirth within the trees, a very, very old theme. Now, Plato, among other Greek philosophers, believed that and taught that the dead um, were um, dwelling on the moon, or at least a, a sphere of energy around the moon that souls went to the moon. Um, and we find this very, very old idea that the light of the moon, the increasing light of the moon, um, has to do with the moon goddess collecting the dead um, on earth and as they collect the dead the light of these spirits begins to illuminate the moon until the moon is literally full of souls and therefore full of light and as their rebirth taken back down to, to reincarnate the light of the moon diminishes until all the souls are delivered back and then the moon is black in the sky and seen um, preparing for another cycle. So that was a very old uh, piece of lore and legend. But I look at that and I think, okay, here we go with the idea of the birch tree being uh, particularly associated with the dead. We talked earlier about the lore of how uh, the dead wear birch vests and hats. So you have this white birch tree, which is associated with the dead and the realm of the dead. Now, if we take the idea... Um, that this uh, birch tree is uh, connected to the dead and we take the idea of reincarnation. We also have, in addition to the moon's uh, branches being seen against the full moon, we have the old images of witches flying on their brooms against the full moon. It's almost a modernization, if you think about it, of that theme of branches pressed against the moon. Because the witches flying on, uh, traditionally in days of old, is flying on a broom that has an ash handle, a birch sweep, and straps of willow that tie the sweep and the handle together. So when you look at that, you've got Hecate, a very strong and ancient uh, goddess associated with witchcraft and witches, being what ties the handle, uh, the ash handle, which is the birth life tree um, to the uh, ties that to the birch sweep which is the of the dead so the three come together and witches fly upon them so the witches flying in this ancient lore um, you know against the moon right you see her flying with her broom and the broom is actually the tree and the tree magic so the birch sweep of the uh, broom actually directs or draws the dead so in a way, the witch is, is um, I hate to use the word herding, <laughs> but maybe escorting is a better um, word, um, spirits of the dead as she flies against the moon 
in the night sky. And I, I just toss these bits of lore together because I think it's interesting, um, you know, the, that we find these elements. And when we find these elements, are we looking at something very ancient tied to something very new? So one of the themes in the ash, birch, and willow um, system of witchcraft is we have a mythos. And a mythos is simply a way of telling a story about something esoteric, something secret, something perhaps not even well-known, but looking to have a story to try and explain things. And that's what myths and legends are all about. They try to explain things through stories, creation myths, all those kinds of things. So in the Asperger and Willow tradition, we have what's called the white tree. And the white tree is what connects to the moon. The branches of the white tree become bridges. So when you see the, the branches against the full moon uh, in the imagery, we see this as bridges that the dead walk um, to reach the moon. And then when the dead return, they come back down those same branches, which are bridges back to this world, and that they are born from, um, are released from that state uh, by the uh, birch tree, of the white tree. So you have the white tree of what we call Feowin and what we call Linnea. The white tree of Linnea leads to the realm of the dead. The white tree of Feowin leads to the realm of the fairy. And so both trees are connected to the moon's light and touching the moon in various ways. Um, so we see this idea of the birch tree and the white tree and the reincarnation. Now, when we look at reincarnation, we can talk about the difference um, between the dead and the ancestors, the difference as to who is returning. And this gets a little tricky um, because one of the things that was passed to me in ancestral communication is the idea that there's a difference between the dead and the ancestors. And the difference is that the dead are still known by people who are alive. So anyone in the living generation who knew somebody who died, that person is among the realm of the dead and very closely connected to the mortal realms of the, um, the land of the living. And you can feel the dead, you can communicate with the dead, they can make their presence known, but it's because they are remembered by somebody. Um, unless you have a haunting, which is a whole different story we may, we may touch upon, we may not. Um, but what I'm trying to get at is, is that the ancestors are different than the dead. How so? Well, what was passed to me is that an ancestor is someone who no one in the living generation actually knew personally. So, for example, your, your grandmother who you knew would be among the dead. But your great-great-grandmother, who you've probably never met, never knew of, she's not remembered by anyone in the living generation. So she slips into the realm of the ancestors. And this gets complicated because I always wondered about this idea of reincarnation. You know, we see a veneration of the dead. We see veneration of the ancestors. People call upon the ancestors, think of them as the ancient ones. But if we believe in reincarnation, then most people would think that these 
ancestors are reincarnating or the dead are reincarnating or whatever it might be. So how is it we venerate the ancestors and at the same time think that they're reincarnated? Who are we talking to if they're not there anymore? Um, and so it makes better sense when we look at this, this ancient idea of the ancestors remaining in the ancestral realm and that the dead eventually become ancestors and that it really is the soul that's reincarnating, not the life person that they once were, nor the ancestors, that they are actually still there communicating with the living. So we get into this idea of the ancestral lineage. You know, we all are excited about our ancestral lineage, you know, tracing your um, ancestors is a big thing now with these uh, DNA uh, companies that will tell you, you know, who, um, your nationality connections were in previous times. So the teaching is that the ancestral lineage, your bloodline, has a mission, which it has had throughout time. And it wants to fulfill that mission. Just as you and I, you know, we grew up wanting to be this or that, and we had a goal for our life and a and a vision that we are trying to accomplish and live, the ancestral uh, lineage has that same parallel mission in which it's trying to accomplish something for the bloodline itself. Now, most of us in modern times, we have several bloodlines within us, so it's a little bit more complicated than, say, cultures that are, you know, probably still fairly pure in their, uh, their, their DNA uh, connections. Now, the story is that the ancestors, because they want to continue to have the fulfillment of their lineage, that in each living generation, they need an agent to be, to be that, uh, you know, legacy, legacy, legacy uh, car- uh, carrier, blood bearer. Yeah. yeah. And so you and I here listening to the show and us talking here are all agents of our lineage bloodlines who are here to further the mission. We may not even know what that mission is, but we're guided by our ancestors through various things, and they're working behind the scenes for us to be able to accomplish that. Well, interestingly enough, when you start thinking of your life in those terms, Mm -hmm. that you could be the legacy bearer of moving something forward for your family, and even discerning what that could be, whether it was something, um, you know, in the physical world or if it was something um, within the person, some kind of um, illness or something like that, mm-hmm. that you, you know, through that, delving into that and, and finding that out would be, it's fascinating thinking about that. Right. I mean, it's, such, it's another part of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle. And it ties into oh, the, why are we here? Yeah, you know, why are we here? We're in the great mystery. Yeah, where do we yeah, come from? Why are we here? Yeah. And where are we going? Yeah. The season represents those questions very well. Um, one of the ideas and one of the teachings associated with the ancestral spirits and being an agent is that it's seen as also the steward of your bloodline. You are the living steward of your bloodline. Now, in days of old, when a king would leave the land to go off and lead his army in battle, um, he would appoint a steward to rule the land in his stead. And so the idea of stewardship is, is a sort of semi-noble uh, status. 
and the steward had uh, the powers of the king, uh, at least a good part of the powers of the king. So when we think of ourselves as stewards of our bloodline, we are stewards of that lineage that we can hold, let's say, a noble office over that, and we can redeem our ancestors and redeem the dead who maybe are in a restrictive uh energy because the karmically, you know, they did something that is binding them in some way that we can, um, I hate to use the word forgive, but we can forgive or release the ancestor by decree of the being the living steward of your bloodline. You can say by the power uh, of, of my stewardship over our bloodline and my, you know, and, and through that role, you know, I release the souls of my ancestors or the souls of the dead from um, anything that binds them or holds them because they feel um, that they, you know, did wrongs in, in life. And, uh, so it gives them the opportunity to be officially redeemed and move on. And this is one of the uh, teachings associated with the, what we call the living river of blood that flows from generation to generation. Um, I was just thinking a little bit uh, back on the idea of the moon and the realm of the dead. And one of the things I wanted to mention in association with the tree and the white tree um, is the uh, idea of a meditation I once had in which I asked the forest what happens to us when we die, humans, what happens to us when we die. And the forest said, when you die... I will breathe you in, hold you for a moment, and then breathe you back into life. And I thought, wow, that ties in, you know, with that old lore of spirits being residing in trees, going into trees and awaiting rebirth, and that the forest is part of the cycle of reincarnation somehow, that hell-bound thing that branches the roots into the underworld, trunk in the middle world of the living, branches in the celestial, and it really is above, below, and in between. And so there is something very mystical tied to that idea. Now, in the idea of reincarnation, we also have this theme of souls coming back for education. And why would a soul need further education, and why would it be in the material realm that they would get that? Well, I think that that's just one of many realms in which a soul is educated. And I think it begins at the base material, just as, you know, most of us began in, uh, you know, either preschool, kindergarten, and we worked our way up. <laughs> but there are many places that I think the soul can be, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little dry cough tonight. I apologize, I'm drinking water. Um, but the soul can go to other realms other than the material realm. For education, and there may be the old four worlds of uh, cultism. Um, so you have the uh, material, the lunar, the solar, and the stellar worlds, and perhaps we reincarnate in all of those before we return to the source from which we came. So the story is the theme is that the soul needs to come back in a body and learn the lessons of material existence, of which there are many. <laughs> <clears throat> And, yeah. and life is difficult, and I think purpose, purposely so, so that the soul's attention is drawn towards these lessons. 
And it is through the hardships that we actually grow and become strong. We don't really grow through the good things in our lives. They don't really propel us on um, and shape us as much as the adversity does. Um, and so in some actual uh, witchcraft initiations, you're challenged with a blade pressed against you and uh, challenged with that, you know, adversity. And are you willing to, you know, to perform the challenge and the, the, uh, the task before you um, to prove your, you know, worthiness? And so then you're, you're led into the initiation, i.e. the soul led into reincarnation. And uh, in that idea, the soul learns finite reality. And that is the education of the soul in this realm. But what do I mean by that? Well, the soul's natural state, its natural consciousness and the natural environment in which it pre-existed, material life, is very dreamlike. In dreams, things are cyclical, transforming and moving one thing into another. And um, it's a different existence. In a dream, if you were going to uh, build a chair, you probably would never complete the chair because the chair might turn into a car and you're driving down the street. Or next thing you know, the chair is, uh, turns into drumsticks and you're playing the drum. You know, It's very hard to complete anything in a dream. Things change and they morph. And even what you're doing in a dream keeps changing. And, you know, it's, and it's very unreal in many Right, yeah. but you just flow with it. You know, yeah. you go with the transformation, and uh, you may be talking to a friend, and the next thing you know, you know, the friend's gone, and then you're asking people where your friend went, and they tell you he's in the building, and then you look for the building, and the building's not there anymore. You know, it just keeps <laughs> morphing and switching. Mm -hmm. But to the soul, that would be natural because it's in an environment which you just do that. It's like the fourth dimension of time is entered into it, so everything's flowing and changing time periods before and after, you know, the dream doesn't make sense chronologically. Um, so that's what the soul is used to. But if you think about that, the soul cannot create anything in that environment. It can experience things. And it can experience transformative things and, and, and be involved in all of that. But it knows nothing of chronology, of step-by-step, -step, of finite reality on how to construct. It only knows how to go with things that flux. So here on the material world, what we actually learn is finite reality, that one thing leads to another. You can build a chair here. There's a step to it. There's a progress to it. And once you've completed the formula, the known formula here, you can construct things. Well, this teaches the soul how to do that so that it becomes a composite being, a being who can take dreamlike things that it knows about, things that more and add in the power of making them cohesive so that these things don't change when you don't want them to. You can make a thought become a thing, like a chair, and it remains a chair after you've thought it out and built it. Your thought has become that chair. In the dream world, that doesn't happen. But if you blend the two together, then in the dream, you can create the chair that always lasts. And in the material world, you can create the dream that transforms so this is how the soul educates itself by learning both modes of existence and expression. And that's part of why we're here uh, in this realm. Well, just thinking about, does that have any relevance to that? What's that? Well, but thinking about above is the goddesses, everything, right. all this conceptual. And then you're talking about 
Uh, so that is the soul right. that, is, that never goes away, that is, that is eternity <laughs> right. and infinite. And then you have us who come down here into this finite reality right. as above, so below. And then you have, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we, we touched on that in a, one or two shows before, that the goddess um, is considered to be the universe, everything. The goddess is the whole. And the god is the finite part of the whole. So by analogy, the year would be the whole or the god in the wheel of the year. And the god would be each month within the year that measures it out. So he's a part of what becomes the year, but the year is always the goddess. So I think what you're talking about is the idea that we have the celestial, which would be the soul mind. Right. Uh, in which that, that doesn't ever change, that doesn't ever die away because it's always morphing and turning into something else in the dream world. So it's, it's really eternal because it doesn't end. Whereas in this world, the finite world, the chair will eventually fall apart and, you know, be here no more. But in the dream world, um, everything that's going on there continues to be that change in that flux. But I think a soul entering back into that is, is better educated on how to work both realities. Yeah, but don't you think that then that, that, the, that the goddess is the everything, and so she is the soul, the god is the body, then, is what I'm saying, right. like a persona? Is it the persona? Does the God end up yes, showing? Absolutely. Yeah, and then you have the body right. of its own of its own life that has been right. built to hold hold you. Right. Yeah, you could say exactly. Yeah, the our physical flesh is is the God holding the Goddess's soul within it. <laughs> um, and then, yeah. you know, if you, if you could very easily do that in the craft of mythos. But but that's tied into the idea too, you know, in the slain gods, that the god dies in the fall, and um, his seed is given back to the land, so that the, the growth cycle of uh, nature continues on. So that's the body's role. The chronological order of the wheel of the year would be, you know, that, whereas the goddess would be the entire year itself undying. Only the parts of it are dying, but it itself never never dies. You, know, you don't see in craft mythology the goddess ever dying. It's the god that dies in the harvest, and the goddess retrieves him and brings him back. So the whole can never die. Parts of the whole can die and be restored by the goddess in her calling of regeneration. Um, and so that's kind of the... Uh, the well, it just kind of struck me when you were saying yeah. that, you know, how that um, all works. Um so we are composite beings, and we are mind, body, and spirit. So we have a body which is flesh. We're at the top of the hour. And we have a um, soul or spirit within that flesh. And then we have a consciousness that is really the joining of them together. So why don't we uh, maybe take a break here at the top of the hour, and we'll come back and finish up on mind, body, and spirit. And then we'll talk about some ritual ideas you can use for your salad. That sounds like a lovely idea. Alrighty then, let's hear some music as we ebb into this, and we'll be right back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Seasons of the Witch with Raven and Stephanie Glamaki. Um, Tonight has been a very interesting show about the dead and ancestors and uh, folklore, uh, all about Halloween. And um, now Raven's going to continue to talk a little bit more about the body, mind, and spirit. And then we want to uh, end the show with talking about how you might want to uh, think about celebrating Oh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. too, um, before we sign off is graveyards mm-hmm. and what your feelings are about graveyards. I, I feel like they are, um, I have a different thought about them, and I just want well, to hear what you have to say. And, and do that, we can come back to this. Well, well, I was just thinking, you know, so many people um, that are in witchcraft and Wicca these days, they like to run off to graveyards, you know, and spend time in graveyards and do things in graveyards, and... You know, it really is a sanctuary for the dead. It is where they are resting. It's where they have been laid. And it's actually a, quite a holy um, and sacred space. And so if you are thinking of going to a graveyard or spending time in a graveyard, um, you should think, think uh, long and hard about your intentions of being there um, that you should have some kind of uh, protection uh, for yourself because not all benevolent spirits are in graveyards. And so you need to think about that while you're going in there. And what are you doing in there? Is it appropriate for your level of knowledge and understanding what could possibly happen within uh, the land of the dead while you're there? And also there's um, 
ways of uh, protecting yourself and that I, I would probably carry some uh, salt and water, maybe in a spray bottle. And uh, before you leave that graveyard, you should always clean your feet. Um, you should, I mean, I feel like you should wipe them off um, and leave, leave that behind you. Don't carry that out into the world with you. Um, do you have any feelings about the graveyards? And, I mean, so, it, it, to me, it's, it's become kind of like a popular thing mm-hmm. where it really isn't a popular thing. I mean, it, 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 it is a pop, what I'm saying is it really shouldn't be in, in the way that it's being construed. Or, well, it shouldn't. You know, a fun it, place to go. Well, that's what I was going right. to say. It, it shouldn't just be, oh, it's Halloween. I think I'll, you know, go in the graveyard and ooh, you know. Um, they are sacred places. I call them the city of the dead. Every time I, I drive by or walk by um, or enter a, a cemetery, I see all these the, the, uh, tombstones and then some have statues and then there's the, um, what do they call those places that are like little houses you know, uh, in the graveyard. Oh, the tombs? No, there's a name for them. I don't know what they call them. Like the crypts. You know, the, actually, I can't remember, there's a name for the houses in a graveyard. Anyway, um, want me to Google it? You see, yeah, <laughs> the city of the dead is, is what I see, you know, and, and the dead are there. And it's a very sacred place. And I understand, you know, witchcraft has long been involved with graveyards in pre Christian times. There's stories in ancient Roman writings about witches going into the graveyard. Uh, they were going there to collect things for their magic because they believed that there was magic associated uh, with the dead and you could connect with the dead through various things. So they might take some soil, you know, graveyard dust, and uh, they might go to a tree and scrape off some of the bark. Well, I think um, even... Pick up a stone, you know, and and try to connect with the dead. Just like people go to visit, you know, their relatives that have died and they lay flowers, you know, on that tombstone there. They're performing an act as though the dead are actually you know, right there. That you couldn't do that at your house. You, know, you have to go to the graveyard and place flowers for your mother, you know, or whatever. So there's this human idea of connection to replace a sacred spot or whatever. Um, so I, I do think that people tend to go to graveyards for fun on Halloween or just to have a spooky experience. But the true practitioner is, is going there to commune with the spirits of the dead. To have a magic or ritual um, connection, you know, so it's done in, in a completely different headspace. It's not, you know, it's not just you know goofing around in the graveyard. It's going there for a specific purpose. So, I, I would encourage one and discourage the other. Do you think that having protection is important? Well, I, I do. I, I think that any time you doing magic or ritual of any kind, you know, you should have some degree of protection on you. Because occult energies in and of themselves draw things. You know, so anytime you're raising energy, it's like a beacon, it's like a ripple. Everything's aware of it, including the things that you'd really rather not have around you. And if they can sense the power, they may want to come and, and absorb some of that power and share in that, you know, and that, that can sometimes be detrimental to the or practitioner. you would say problematic. Yes. Um, so, you know, if, if I was going into a graveyard and I wanted to collect something for magic or whatever it might be, I would put a protective oil on me. I would trace a pentagram on my body. And, um, 
you know, where a charred soil with a sense that is protective. And I would ask my my deities and my plant allies and all those to to be with me to uh, assure that nothing attaches itself or follows me back out of it. Um, things that are unseen are unseen. Um, if I take anything from a graveyard, and I suggest this for everyone, if you take anything from a graveyard, a stone, some earth, piece of bark, you know, whatever it might be, um, make sure you leave something in its place. An offering, not An offering. Coins, yeah. Yeah. grain, mm-hmm. um, food, food, flowers, flowers plants, whatever. Yep. Um, you you must return something back. If you don't, you disturb the sacredness of the place. And, and it could be in days of old they would say you offend the spirits of the dead, and then one of them who is angry attaches itself to you. Um, these are old lore, but I think lore has seeds or roots within actual things. That's where these stories came from, because somebody noticed, you know, that that happened, and so the story grew around it. So it's very wise. You're you're working with um, with otherworldly beings, and you're working with beings that are on the, on the other side and they have their own agenda, so they have their own, you know, things that they're dealing with. And when we go into their realm, we disturb it. And so it's better to enter with sacredness and, and, and holiness and treat it like that so that there's nothing in that energy that can be offensive. But if somebody goes in and decides, oh, I'm going to chip off a piece of tombstone, it'd be cool to have a you know, a piece of tombstone from a graveyard, I'll take it home, put it on my altar. <laughs> yeah. That's a big mistake. Yeah. I would not do that. No, um, uh, or I'm going to dig down deep in this one grave and, you know, just take some soil. You know, you're disturbing sacredness there. Take your soil from around the grave area. Take your um, uh, bark from trees that are in not in close proximity to tombstones and never write on a tombstone, never tip a over and don't sit on a tombstone, you know, for rest. Um, treat the place as it should be treated. It's a sacred and holy area, but it has a lot of juju in it because the association of the dead, spirits of the dead. So there's power in graveyards. There's no, there's, there's no arguing that. But you have to make sure you treat that power properly. So let's touch back on um, the mind, body, and spirit, and then we'll close uh, with the um, veneration and altar work with the dead. So we're still on the theme of reincarnation, and, and um, you know most systems will tell you that we have a mind, body, and spirit. The spirit is also sometimes called the soul. Those words get interchanged, and some people don't think they mean the same thing. And I'm not going to argue that on the radio show, but we'll call it mind, body, and spirit. We'll call the spirit that which is eternal, and the body that which is uh, mortal, and the mind becomes the third object. What happens to that? Well, the mind belongs to the individual. So, I as Raven, Stephanie, Stephanie, our minds are that persona that comes from the body and the spirit. My soul is certainly not raven. My soul is actually a higher being that is eternal and is right now experiencing life as this raven character. 
and learning what lessons the Raven persona or mind can offer it. Um, the mind is also an agent for the ancestral lineage. So the persona or mind is also directing the body's experience. And the body's experience is the ancestral connection because it's the DNA, it's the body that connects us to the ancestors. So what gets tricky is who is reincarnating? Some people think that, okay, you know, say John Doe dies. And some people think that John Doe then reincarnates in the next life as you know, Mary Joe or whoever. Um, but is that true? I mean, is the persona or the mind really the being that continues on, or is it the soul, and is there a difference between the two? Well, we would assume there's a difference between the two because the, the spirit or soul pre-existed any mortal flesh body. When it came into it, it was a larger being than just the body could be, and the mind is really connected by it, you know, logically to the body. Um, what happens to the body happens to the mind, not to the soul. The soul is unaffected, you know, by pain, by disease, by pleasure. Um, those are things that are happening between the mind and the body. So if somebody dies, what is it that really reincarnates? And if the dead can become ancestors, then they're not coming back. The ancestors aren't being reincarnated. If we think of them as the ancestral spirit that all generations can continue to venerate, then they're not reincarnating, reincarnating. So what is? From my view, uh, it's just my view to share, is it's the soul. And the soul is a collection of every lifetime it's led. So when I die, my raven will become, my raven personality persona will become part of the memory of the soul. I liken it to the idea that each of us right now were at one time a fetus, a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 20-year-old, whatever it might have been. We looked different then. We had different experiences. Things were different in terms of what was important to us and what we what put our time and energy into. So it's almost like each one of those little episodes of you being four years old, 15 years old, 20 years old, is like different lifetimes. And so I liken that to the soul. The soul has within it all the lifetimes of everyone you've ever been. And it can remember them, just like you can turn around and remember being 15 and feel the way maybe you felt back then or feel the things you felt about 15. Um, but you're not 15 anymore. It's part of who you are now. So you are, by analogy, the soul remembering past lives, you know, the 20-year-old self, 15-year-old self, 10, 4, back. So the soul is like that. It's remembering all the lifetimes it was, but it's not taking the persona with it. So John Smith doesn't reincarnate. John Smith's soul reincarnates and remembers John Smith and integrates that experience into itself. But you are the soul that's always been, and that's what's really alive. So the persona of John will fade away from the dead when no one remembers them anymore. He'll slip into the ancestral realm and become part of the group mind. The ancestors are the group mind of everyone who's come before you um, who is no longer remembered. And from that, that ancestral uh, mind, we are aided in this lifetime. The more we commune with those ancestors, 
um, the better off we are because they have a vested interest in our survival because they're trying to accomplish the lineage mission and have us be the agents that's doing that. So they have experienced everything we can possibly experience in life. They Collectively, they've done it all. So when we have a dilemma or a situation, our ancestors can actually address it because a number of them got through it and they can teach us and help us get through it too. So that's one of the reasons that we um, communicate with the ancestors. One of the many reasons that But that's the tricky part when we, you know, we look at reincarnation on our views of the dead and the ancestors. Who is reincarnating? And if you're going to get a better model next time, in a better lifetime, it seems that really that points to the soul is the best one equipped to educate further by containing all the beings that's already been. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're John Doe and you reincarnate, you're not John Doe anymore, so you've lost that part. And then people say, well, you know, past life memories. Well, the ancestors that I've communicated with have indicated, be careful with the idea of past life memories because they may not be all yours. You may be remembering an ancestor's lifetime mm -hmm. because it's, the ancestors are connected to you within your blood in your being in your body. So when you go into meditation, there's lots of doorways. And you actually may be remembering the life of an ancestor, but you think it's yours. So the ancestors have told me to be very careful, you know, when you're talking about past lives, because that may not be all that you remember may not be all, yours you know, to remember. Yours to remember. Right, right. right. Uh, and I'm not big on um, past life recall. You know, uh, unless there's trauma involved and needs to be redeemed or resolved, I think each lifetime is sufficient. <laughs> you know, I certainly for do. itself to uh, yeah. you know have those uh, experiences that only we can have. Well, I, I mean, I think that there's so many ways now um, to be able to clear um, any past history you know that you might have without really spending a lot of time focus focusing on that. Like the idea of soul mending or the redemption right. you were talking about, that I think that you can, I think there's an opportunity to move through that, that idea of past life um, pains and um, you know occurrences that people may be holding them back or that they created patterns that they're you know continuing to do that weren't the best or you know right. whatever. Because just going to change anything that's good, right? Yeah. That you're embracing that's, that's come to you that might be considered good <laughs> instead of, you know, a bad trade or something bad happened. Right. Or <laughs> you know, and, and with the past life recall, I mean, I, you know, through my years, I've met people who, you know, I've, I've met at least 15 people of different ages who told me they were in the reincarnation of Alistair Crowley. Really? That's, yeah. At least. Really? That oh, yeah. At least. Oh, okay. And, you know, that seems unlikely. <laughs> you know, I, I've had one, I had one psychic once tell me about a past life, and um, she told me that I was a whore, oh. and that I was one of uh, Toulouse Le Lautrec's whores oh. in France. My goodness. Yes, I know. During the uh, 17th century, hmm. whenever he was 19th century. Yeah, the, the past lives that I think were mine. I have a physical reaction to them. Um, I was 
you know, almost in everyone a, a soldier of some type, and I was killed in battle um, with all of those. So I guess I wasn't a particularly effective warrior. <laughs> so maybe that's why I went, never went into the military in this life. I, I don't know. Maybe I decided to break that pattern and become a writer. Um, so let's talk a little bit about communicating with the dead or with the ancestors at Samhain gathering on November Eve when the veil between the worlds is extremely thin. In, um, in most traditions, and I'll speak you know, from ours because that's the most the working model for us, uh, Stephanie and I, um, we'll talk about the idea of the skull and the use of the colors, red, white, and black. Um, so our altar would be essentially a black cloth over you know, whatever table we're using for an altar. And that black cloth represents procreation. Where does anything come from? And so we have that laid out. And then on that black cloth, we have a skull, which represents what came forth from that uh, procreation. And it's the, the bone memory of life itself. Um, and so you have a white skull sitting on a black cloth. And then on top of that white skull is a red candle representing the life blood living this existence, which came also from the black creation, procreative state. So now you have red, white, and black on the altar representing the birth, life, death. Um, and the, the circle around it, that circle around that altar is renewal. So you have the theme of this dimension itself, which is birth, life, death, and renewal. There is no end, it's all recycled. But the bone memory continues on and that's what we pick up. So the bone memory is part of the re idea of reincarnation, that each bone memory is remembered by the soul that once wore that skull, or bore that skull, however you want to look at it. So what you'll find, you know, Halloween, a lot of times you'll see a skull with the, um, the femur bones crossed in front of it, so it's like an X. You know, you see the large bones in front of the skull. And to, uh, to us, that represents that the boundary between the living and the dead is sealed. So what you, what you do um, and what suggest, we suggest you do at, at Salon is, is try this. Take your, get a skull, and they're easy to find this time of year because it's Halloween, so they can be made from anything, uh, and some crossbones. Uh, we once went out and bought the, like this big bag at a Halloween store. It's called Bag of Bones. Or, <laughs> remember that? Oh, it was the entire skeleton, yeah. you know, that you could assemble. Um, so we kept the skull and the, and the femur bones, and we used that on our altar so we could cross the bones in front of the skull. And then we put the red candle on. So what you do is you have your skull, crossbones are crossed in front of it. Um, and then on somewhere on your altar, have an offering plate of food and a chalice for a drink. Now, I like to have my um, offerings of food be something that is ancestral, you know, to my lineage. Or something that the dead that I knew in life um, really liked. Mm -hmm. You know, so whether it's a candy they really liked or a soup they really liked, whatever it might be. So I will make that. It could be for multiple people. It doesn't yeah, have to be just for one person. Yeah. You could, uh, you know, most of us have multinationalities you know, right. these days. You know, for example, I'm half, half Italian, quarter German, quarter Scott. 
So on my altar, I would place something from my German lineage, my Scott lineage, and then my Italian lineage. And there may be foods that were, you know, associated with those cultures or drinks that was associated with those cultures. So here I have my crossbones in front of my skull, and I put a red candle on top of the skull. The red candle represents the lifeblood that flows from generation to generation. So we light the skull candle, the red candle. And as the candle begins to drip the red wax, that's symbolic of the flowing blood from generation to generation. So we're awakening the memory of life on the skull now. Um, this ties in with a very old teaching, not a teaching, I'm sorry, a story in which some Greek heroes are seeking the uh, information that someone among the dead have. And this witch tells them how to find um, the underworld and the dead. And she says to them, when you get there, you must uh, bleed your, uh, cut your hand and bleed it into a, a chalice and give it to the uh, dead to drink. And when the dead uh, drink, they will remember being alive. And when they remember being alive, they will remember who they were in life. And when they remember who they were in life, they will remember how to speak. And so that was the way that you communicated with the dead, was you reminded them of life. And that way they could relate to you and, and commune with you. So that was kind of a esoteric teaching in this old tale. So the red candle represents that, dripping wax, uh, communicating with the dead through the blood. You can actually cut your, like, say, thumb or something and put a couple of drops in a cup of water instead to, if you're really hardcore and you want the old ways, um, then, then use the actual uh, life force of your lineage blood to, uh, to attract and uh, awaken the memory, the bone memory of the dead. So once you have the candle, lit, then you, you take the crossed femur bones and you uh, open them, you slide them away from each other so that the bones now, uh, one end of the bone is pointing at you and the other ends of the bones are pointing at the skull. So it's almost like the arms uh, are reaching out, out. to embrace you. Um, but it can also be that the bones um, are markers for the road, the pathway into the ancestral spirit leading to the skull. Or road open. The road open. Excellent. So now what you have is the skull with the bones open and welcoming and the red candle burning. Um, which is the blood memory of, uh, that connects you and the dead. And then you put your offerings in front of the skull. So your food offerings and drink offerings are slid between those two bones uh, that are pointing at the skull, and then you slide it up and uh, you offer them. So you would tell your ancestors, I give you these offerings, and um, you know, I hope you will accept these offerings. And then you commune with them. You can you know, sit and talk with them, ask them questions, ask for their help, clarity, protection, whatever it might be. Or sit, sit quietly with them and, and read and, messages. Yeah, and say, what, what advice what, do you yeah. have for me? Or what do I need to know? What do I need to know? And then you can sit with the dead quietly and, and, and feel that connection come. It's also a perfect time to do divination. You know, you can use your tarot cards or oracle cards or your pendulum and sit right there on the altar. Um, you could even spread those bones wider. I was just going to say that, that you could have them at an angle so <laughs> right. that they're encompassing yeah. the top of the table. Exactly, and then you have more room and you could do your card spread. Mm -hmm. You could set down uh, something for a pendulum. 
Um, even do a Ouija board if you're into that. Um, you know, there's lots of things you can do, but now you have a working model that's operating ever ancient, ever new. You're, you're in something, a rooted practice that's very old, but done in a new way. So, you know, we, we, we do... Um, and break that. Yeah, and, 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 and suggest it, you know, give it a shot and see what bone memory uh, your ancestors uh, have waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end, when you um, are ready to release... Well, wait, before you do that, I just want to say a little mm-hmm. uh, more about the offerings. Okay. That be sure and don't leave your offerings mm-hmm. rocking, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in front of your, on your altar, or if you have a special shrine or something that you've presented these offerings on that. Make sure that you remove them. Um, you know, anything that you serve hot, by the time it's cold, I think it should be removed if it was a hot dish. Um, if you have flowers, be sure that once you start to see them wilting, you remove them. And the idea behind that is that the, the dead are consuming the astral forms of these offerings that you're making. And so it is important when you're thinking about what you are going to offer, how that would be received on the other end. I mean, um, whether they're immediate relatives of yours, or if they're, you know, you're looking further back, you want to touch, you want to touch that living river of blood that's beyond just who you knew, the dead, as we even explained earlier tonight. Um, it's important that you um, do not let them. Stay longer than they should. Yeah, the idea is anything that is said as an offering at any given moment is the offering you're giving. So, for example, if you set an apple in front of your ancestors or a deity or whatever, and you offer that apple, uh, as long as it's fresh, there there's a fresh apple that is the offering. But if you let that sit there, you know, and you just go off and do your thing and you forget about it and you come back. Several days later, and there's a rotten apple sitting on the plate. What you've done now is you're offering rotten apples um, because that's sitting there in the offering position. Um, so a ritual etiquette, magical etiquette, would mm-hmm. be to remove anything that is decaying. Um, um, you know, unless decaying is part of you know a particular ritual you're doing, maybe with you know for whatever reason that might be, and whatever entity you're working with. But by and large, you know, uh, most of the things that we work with would would be honoring fresh and, and not decaying things and offerings. So to close, um, you you um, thank the ancestors for coming and for being there in your life, and you um, blow out the candle, the red candle, or snuff it out, whatever is your preference. And that cuts the tie of the living connection. And then you slide those bones back over into the X position in front of the skull to close that gateway. Um, you don't want to leave the gateway open between the living and the dead. Um, both have their own realms to be in. Um, and that's, that's the state of things. We are in the world of the living. They are in the world of the dead. And those uh, that uh, doorway is not always open in in the wheel of the year, and so we must honor the idea that the door is closed for their sake and for our sake. Um, so then you, okay, so you cross the bones, um, candles out, 
remember to deal with the offerings. You leave them there for a while, but remember to deal with them later. Um, we always try with offerings of this thing after the sun comes up to remove them. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, I mean, if they're, uh, what we would do is uh, typically, if you know, if they could decompose uh, organically, we would put them in the west somewhere, um, either on the property or you know near a tree in the western quarter, um, to be received there, rather than you know just throwing them away. Right. Now, when we close down, we say to the dead. Um, we always have this closing in our ritual, whether we're doing elementals, deities releasing, you know, whoever it is on the other side. We always part with these words, and I would, you know, suggest trying that also. And the words are, and as you depart unto your realm, may there always be peace between us. May you always look with favor upon us. This is the old idea of keeping peace. Um, and, and, and being looked upon with favor, because being looked upon with favor assures communication in return. So we say that when we release the elementals in our circle. May there always be peace between us. May you always look with favor upon us. We say the same things when we part with deity and certainly with the ancestors and the dead. Um, and, and that's a, a ritual rapport um, that we have in the expert tradition. So that's uh, pretty much what we've come to talk to you about this evening. And I think what we'll do now is uh, close with some an announcements and a little chit-chat, and then we'll, uh, we'll wish you um, adieu at the end of the show. So, <laughs> Stephanie, is there anything you would like to tell the folks about? Yeah. So um, this week on Friday, uh, if you are in and around this area of New New Haven. We are going to be at Curious Goods, and I think I believe that I mentioned this the last time uh, on our show that we are doing Italian witchcraft for the last time in a public venue. Uh, we are thinking of uh, making it into a two-hour video um, workshop where people will be able to download it or you know go to a platform and watch it. So, but live and in person. This will be the last, uh, the last workshop on Italian witchcraft at Curious Goods on Friday the 19th, I believe. Um, and that's in New Haven. If you want more information, you can call the shop. And um, talk to the times? Uh, seven, it'll be, the workshop itself is from 7 to 9. We will be there early for a uh, meet and greet, oh. a book signing. So um, I believe you could you purchase books there. Mm -hmm. I know that um, they have purchased our self-published books, so those will be available mm -hmm. there, yep. as well as, um, I believe, Italian witchcraft and hereditary witchcraft. And if you have uh, a copy already and you want to come down, I'd be happy to sign your your personal copy. If you'd like to come down there and purchase one at the shop, I'd be happy to sign that as well. We'd love to see you come out there. This is yep. going to be our first uh, time at Curious Goods, and um, we'd like to... Um, come again, but uh, we'll need your support in order to do that uh, because um, we, you know, we need to be a viable uh, entity for her. Mm -hmm. So um, then on Sunday, we are going to be doing Zuzu's 12th Annual Holiday uh, New Age Show, which is going to be in Danbury. Uh, so if you're in that area or you're driving around, um, you know, 
in that area, stop by this holistic um, New Age holiday show. It's gonna it's gonna be big, and uh, I've heard that it's, it's it's very well received. And that is at the DoubleTree um, by Hilton uh, in Danvers. It's 50 Ferncroft Road, Danvers, Massachusetts. So we'll be doing that. And then on I believe let me just really check quickly on my little calendar, but I do believe that the 27th of October, we are going to be, no, I'm sorry, the 26th, Thursday the 26th of October, we will be at the Robin's Nest in Bellingham doing a workshop on enhancing your divination skills. Oh, yeah. And that's going to encompass all types of divination. Mm-hmm. So uh, bring it with you if you're planning on coming. Bring your, your cards, your decks, your uh, beans, your pendulum, whatever it is. Uh, bring it along with you, and uh, we'll have some tips and some. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about uh, divination. And uh, then in the November, November fourth, we're going to be in Phoenix, Arizona. We are the guests of Pagan Pride on Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, we're really looking forward to that. We actually have not been to that area of the country to um, mm, do anything. Uh-huh. And um, for those of you who are inquiring, too, about the courses, there are uh, several of the courses will not be coming to a conclusion until after the first of the year, and they will open in the spring of 2018 for registration. So I believe Italian Witchcraft will reopen. We continue to do that course. Um, That will be open for registration, I believe, um, March, and lessons begin in April, and I believe it's around the same time for Ashbrook and Willow and the Inner Mysteries. So we'll be posting about that as the time gets nearer to the registration date. Usually we open registration a month before the course actually starts. Mm -hmm. And if you have any questions about any of those things, please write to us at uh, ashbirch, um, I'm sorry, at ash.birch.willow at gmail.com or you can reach us through uh, hasekomofsky.com website. Now uh, we're still we're still catching up with our lives after um, the fire in June, and um, we are still working on um, getting everything situated. I am working feverishly and have been on Ravensloft, bringing it back up to its uh, its normal uh, state of existence. Uh, unfortunately, I still have many things that are coming into conflict with me staying focused the uh, whole time on that particular thing. But please, go and visit, see what's new. Um, it's a great way to support us and what we do, and we appreciate your, your business. Um, I know you have lots of choices out there. So um, if there's something that you don't see on the website, you can always write to me and ask if it's possible for me to get it for you. And... Um, Anything else you'd like to talk well, about? I'm just looking to see if there was anything in the chat room. I saw some stuff popping up there, and I was wondering if we needed to address anything. Uh, when are we coming to the West Coast? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> um, we're not sure. When yeah, we're, we're not coming. sure about uh, um, the West Coast. Yeah, we really can't time, say at this moment. But Just always check the um, House of Democracy has the appearance schedule. Does it not? Yes, it has. A, it's called the events page. Events page. So yes. check that out from time to time, and if we are 
going to be out there. Um, we um, will put it there. There's a possibility we may or may not uh, be at Pantheacon um, in uh, February. February of next year. Uh, that would be a California West Coast event, but we're, we're not sure that that's going to work out. Um, so, anything else in there? No. Nope. Okay. Nope. So, so, I guess we're probably ready to well, close. That, no? yeah, oh, yeah. But mm. I was going to say, our next show is going to be on November 1st. What is Our next show. Oh. It will be November 1st. Mm. So, we will come up with something for interesting. Three days of the dead. Interesting things to talk yeah, about. Yeah, we'll find something to insulate. And if you, uh, if you were thinking about having some guests on too. If, yeah. there's, if there's anyone in particular you might like to have us on as a guest that you think would, you know, gel with what we, um, you know, with what we teach, or you know, be an interesting topic in, in contrast to what we teach, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us again. Um, you can email Raven at, G- at uh, Gramasi at Comcast.net. And you can email me at stephanie at houseofgramasi.com. So, um, you know, it, doesn't, it isn't redundant for Raven and myself to say, again, to everyone who listens to this show and continues to support us, believe in us, and um, just be there for us during all of this time of transition that we've been going through, how grateful we truly are for for that. Um, Every day, it is because of you that we have been able to keep moving on, and we want you to know that we're doing it in the best way that we possibly can and honoring um, the sacredness of our Mm -hmm. lives. Um, And and, 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 uh, if we're not attentive, as attentive as we should be, or you feel like you've been lost in the cracks or something, um, just please keep trying because um, you know things are things are still in a in a malleable state, and uh, we, we we're not uh, what do I want to say we're not overlooking it's not an oversight we're just consumed. So. Yeah, you know silence is an indication of our situation. Yeah, not and not an indication of how we feel about any particular individual. Or so. yeah. You know, uh, just just bear that in mind. Is there anything else you uh, wanted to say before we sign off? No. Okay. That's okay. it. So, um, dear listeners, as you depart, may there always be peace between us. May you always look with favor upon us. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to joining us again next time on Seasons of the Witch. Blessings of Gadrian and Salon to all.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.